Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers in the field. Wise is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the sixth and final episode in a series that explores post-pandemic priorities for education around the world. As was the case with the previous episode featuring Tracy Burns of the OECD, at the end of my conversation with our guest, I will be joined by Andrew Jack, Global Education Editor at the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to exchange views on some of the other education issues that he is exploring. Before I introduce this episode, let me once again remind our audience about why, when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, WISE is choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities. For a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted Education Reimagined series of convenings, and the ebook that came out of those discussions. All of that can be found on our website at www.wise-qatar.org. So we feel that we have covered this ground well. Moreover, despite the worsening situation in many parts of the world, we remain optimistic that the accelerating rollout of effective vaccines will see the world turning the corner in the not-too-distant future. And in our view, this is precisely the time to start thinking about and planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that are top of mind for us at WISE. The first set of questions revolves around how well we understand the scale of the challenge, both in terms of learning loss, but also in terms of issues to do with mental health and well-being, as well as the loss of the socializing functions of education. And as a follow-up to this, how well are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? And the second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful and impactful changes to our education systems. There was, and still is, a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the final part of our series, post-pandemic priorities for education. Africa is the birthplace of humanity, the place where Homo sapiens evolved language, built increasingly complex tools, and took the first tentative steps on a journey that would see our species populate the entire world. In terms of deep ancestry, every person alive today can trace their roots back to individuals who lived in Africa. If Africa represents humanity's distant past, it also, in many respects, represents its future. Most of the world's growth in population today, and for the foreseeable future, is taking place in Africa. Indeed, the UN projects that by 2090, around half of all children under the age of 15 will be in Africa. It does not take a giant leap of the imagination, therefore, to conclude that the education of those children is a matter of crucial importance, not just for the continent itself, but the entire world. To help us understand the state of education in Africa, both pre, during, and post-pandemic, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Shannon May. Shannon is the president and co-founder of New Globe, the largest supporter of technology-enabled schools across Africa, supporting national and state governments and communities across the continent, with a particular focus in transforming educational outcomes at speed and at scale, delivering increased learning gains in often marginalized and underserved communities. 
New Globe opened its first bridge community school in Kenya in 2009 and today supports communities through such schools across Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Liberia, and more recently in India. Since 2016, New Globe has partnered with the Liberian government and currently supports 171 of the 223 public schools in its LEAP program. In 2018, it began supporting the IDOBEST basic education transformation program in Edo State, Nigeria, with more than a thousand public primary schools. And it also supports a similar number of public primary schools in Lagos State through the EcoXL program. New Globe reaches about 1 million children every day across Africa. Shannon, who is based in Nairobi, Kenya, therefore, has a unique pan-African perspective on education systems. During our conversation, we discussed the overall state of education in Africa pre-pandemic, education responses during the pandemic, and the extent to which they may carry over to the post-pandemic era, the role of learning sciences in informing education policy and practice, parental engagement, the status and appreciation of teachers, and many more topics. With that, please join me in conversation with Shannon May. Shannon, welcome back to Wise Words. Thank you, Starbus. It's lovely to be here with you and get to have a conversation amidst everything that's going on. And a big thank you to uh, Wise and the whole community and the work that Wise has done to continue to bring educators together to help us all push our conversations and our work further. So thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure, Shannon. And I, you know, I tried in, in that brief intro to give some background context in, in as to why you uh, and your organization uniquely have, you know, this multi-country perspective and on the ground perspective about what is what is happening, broadly speaking, in education in Africa. But you know, perhaps maybe, you know, you can provide some some additional context and give us a sense of, you know, the scale. I think we did that with the reference to Liberia, but, the, you know, the scale of your activities and, you know, the number of students and, and communities that you're engaged with. We currently work across five countries in sub-Saharan Africa um, in different ways because different countries have different needs, different communities have different needs. Um, as you mentioned, we started our work for communities. Uh, I come from a background as an anthropologist. I was a community worker. Find problems, solve problems, serve the people you live with. And so we began our work back in 2007, um, the preparatory work and the research work, you know, for what behind the scenes is called New Globe and what in the public was always known as Bridge. And now New Globe has lots of programs in addition to Bridge. But all of that came from this desire to ensure every child can access the type of education that could transform their life so that the arbitrariness of their own birth doesn't determine their future. And when we began Bridge, our goal wasn't to create private schools. Our goal was to create effective schools. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there weren't weren't as many visionary governments as gratefully there are today with elected leaders who are willing to look at the situation that they're in and realize that investing in education is the core foundation for their economic development. And so we've been really honored to be part of the kind of growing work that's a a very big ecosystem, lots of people involved, Um, but the growing work that is governments trying to really improve their public sector systems and looking for technical support 
And so now in addition to our work with, um, with Bridge and like our work directly for parents and in communities, um, we take on the challenge that governments put out. The first one was, as you mentioned, in Liberia in 2016, President Sirleaf fast us to come and see if we could work in her government schools with her existing teachers. And could we help bring some of these practices of teacher support and training and um, ongoing management support to help her government schools? And, you know, it's great. We're in our end of our fifth year there, and we're really proud of the work we're able to do with the ministry. But over time, even more government leaders across Africa are starting to put out terms of reference and RFPs asking for people to serve them to really turn around um, and improve teacher support and with a goal of really measuring learning impact. So now we work um, in two different states in Nigeria, supporting government transformation programs at the early childhood and primary school and junior secondary school levels. And then uh, we're just starting some work in East Africa, um, in Rwanda, and are looking forward to that actually getting off the ground next year. That, that does give us a, a, a lens across both East and West Africa, across how COVID certainly has been for parents and communities um, in affordable community schools, as well as how state governments have been trying to address uh, the learning crisis um, during COVID, as well as before COVID and now kind of a little bit, you know, trying to come out of it. And I hope I answered your question there, but what I might have missed is um, we do we do focus on, we try to serve where we can serve at scale. You know, scale might be 100 schools or 250 schools or 1,000 schools. You know, currently across Nigeria, we support more than 2,000 um, government schools where we're responsible for um, to support the ministry or the state universal basic education board in their teacher training, their material preparation, um, you know, to support their teams to really try to raise management practice across the government schools. And we're really, we're really honored to be able to, to do that work. I appreciate that more nuanced, you know, context about the activities that, that New Globe has across the continent. And, and again, I think it's, it's, it's rare to find someone with, you know, with that kind of broad perspective across, you know, m- multiple countries. To the extent that you you can, tell us a little bit about, you know, what what was the situation pre-COVID in the communities that you are active and what has happened since before we then get into a discussion around, well, you know, what, what kind of needs to happen from here on? It's hard. It's hard, right? It's like one. Remember pre-COVID, right? Like that seems like a really long time ago. But at the same time, um, the, a lot of the challenges are very similar. Um, some things have definitely very much changed, both during COVID and, and lockdowns and school closures. But certain things of you know, for people who aren't working across Sub-Saharan Africa, some of this might seem implausible, right? But realizing that across many governments who haven't yet. Um, started digitizing a lot of their civil service work and starting digitizing how they can how, how they can support their teachers and how they can digitize even their human resources support. Often, and this so this isn't a pre or post COVID issue, but it's a consistent issue across uh, government service work in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Is often governments don't yet know where the teachers are. Right. Like they might have teachers on they have teachers on payroll. Many governments are very careful about making sure they pay their teachers on time, but they may not have that track to exactly which school the teacher is assigned to. Um, some do, some don't. And but what that means on a, on a pretty core level is you may not know where your teaching staff are even supposed to be 
on a given day. And then for, for those that have already made the step to really track records down to the school level, which is like a really key thing, often uh, they haven't digitized the, the records at the school level yet. You know, it's unclear if the teaching staff are getting the support they need. It's unclear if maybe they're having trouble getting to school. It's unclear if it's too far of a distance. And so maybe they're coming late. And often what we've we've seen, and, and we really come in to try to really support the ministry in upgrading their technical systems, is that that's a really easy first step to just start to really build core accurate records around core school operations. And if you can start to do that, it really empowers the ministry and it empowers the, the state universal basic, basic education boards to really have information to make management decisions based on. And it's really exciting when you see that shift start to happen, you know, where, where a leader who is trying to do the right thing every day and but has been in many ways held back from their full potential because they just don't know what they don't know. Like they don't know what's happening out there across thousands of schools and tens of thousands of classrooms. And just kind of bringing that data set to life and making what's happening in classrooms more visible to government leaders is really empowering. And so when I think about like core things, it's it's definitely pre-COVID, but it's definitely a challenge that still exists everywhere, but it's pretty core to all of, to anything that anyone wants to do to support teachers. One of the first steps is making sure you know even where they're supposed to be, right? Yeah. And 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 has anyone checked that they're there and checked that they're okay? Yeah. And then and then everything else can kind of build onto that. No, I know it it it, it sounds, I mean it, it's a statement, the obvious, but you're right. I think many, many people who don't have experience of working in in, in these contexts, you know, don't appreciate that even just getting these basics right, it, you know, requires a, you know, a fairly sizable effort in, in terms of getting, you know, getting systems in place and getting, making sure the information is accurately captured and then communicated back uh, to, to the policymakers. And I, I, I imagine that COVID compounded some of these, some of these challenges, as well as more, more, you know, more obviously then also Try, you know, trying to figure out how, how do you deliver education in, you know, in a context where you're having to lock down schools and you may not have the technology, you know, infrastructure in place to deliver on, on digital. So what's been your experience in, in, in trying to navigate that? Yeah. So, so that, I think a really big shift under COVID uh, was the whole area of how did children learn outside of school? It was not really a question that that, that even at Bridge, we spent much time thinking about, let alone that most, most ministries think about, right? Because you're like, hey, I have, I have an agenda. Like, I have the time I have with children. Once we set the school calendar and the timetable, uh, you know, ministries, state boards, uh, affordable schools are all out there really trying to think about how to maximize and excel within that framework. And I think might be a positive long-term effect of this period was forcing everyone to realize to, to think about, well, how do you conceptualize the time outside of the classroom? And to how do you do that realistically, like understanding the limits of the ecosystem of this child or this community? And how do you do that also realizing um, the limits of time, right? So like the more time you might have in a school day, the less you might think you need to structure around the out-of-school time. But I think it's a really important part that's going to last have, have lasting effect, hopefully, if there's ever a post-COVID era. Um, and we saw different um, struggles across, across different countries. So like a pretty basic one is, you know, so first there becomes how do you reach people? Just how, yeah. do, you, how do you reach a child? 
you know, who is in a family that's struggling to make it, that is in difficult economic circumstances. Like these are not children who have fiber to their houses. These are not children who have laptops. These are not children who have tablets. These are children who do not have any device of their own. And then across different countries and different communities, there's different level of access to devices of their parents. There's also different level of access to electricity even, or or to radios. So just to give like an example, it's like in in Kenya, more than 80% of the parents we serve today have a smartphone. Five years ago, that was not true. It was like 5%. There's been a really radical shift. Similarly in Nigeria, more than 80% of parents who are sending their child to a government school in Lagos, in those two areas, a smartphone becomes a really interesting means of access. How can you think through how a parent, what's the cost of data? How's a parent access data? When when are the child and parent together is another thing to think about. And what sorts of things can you push through that medium? But in Uganda, mm -mm, smartphones are not a thing. Neither are they in Liberia. You can't design for a smartphone in those contexts. And so like understanding the technological ecosystem and who has access to what is pretty important. But one of the things we found really interesting, um, some different choices that were made uh, by, by governments we serve in Nigeria were debates about radio. So I know like in the, in like the big, in you know, the common sense conversation, it's often considered, Hey, radio is, is easily accessible, um, is a fast resource. And then it, it's out there and like everyone can access a radio. But when you really dig in, radio play can be expensive. It's not granted to the government for free. So then they're buying per hour and it you know it goes away after that hour. It doesn't stay live. And then when it airs at a specific time, the child has to have access to the radio at that specific time, which becomes difficult, right? They might have other chores. They might be sent out to apprentice. They have to be allowed to control the radio instead of someone else in the family. And so the government partners we work with made some different decisions um, as we try to map this out. Um, one of them uh, put all we we designed audio lessons for them, um, on, you know, d- during the lockdown, and they put it on their state universal basic education website, and then uh, worked with MTN, like the national one of the national big tel- telco carriers, to make the website um, zero rated access. So then it could be that you could actually have parents engaging, downloading the state, downloading lessons, and then they were essentially available to them at any time, and that made it actually more accessible than radio play, which was you know, a thing we all had to dig into and really think about. And different decision was made over um, in Lagos where they did something pretty remarkable where we worked with them to figure out like what was the least cost access to actually get a device into a child's hands, right? Because a smartphone problem, you're still going through someone else, right? Like another member of your family. And we worked, we worked with them. We did a lot of uh, work with factories we have relationships with in China. And we were able to get individual MP3 players. Like most people don't even remember these things exist, right? You know, these tiny little devices, like the size of almost a quarter and a pair of headphones and an SD card. And so then we could preload 25 audio lessons at a time. Kids could pick them up at school, go home. So like under lockdown and, and under limited schooling, it was a way of making every child could actually control their own learning. Like they could listen to it when they had time, they didn't have to rely on an adult. And, and that was like another really innovative step, you know, of like Lego state government really trying to think through how could we, what, what did we need to do to get a device into a child's hands and then being willing to take that step? On the one hand, I mean, it's, it's 
it's remarkable how much, you know, again, innovation has taken, you know, taken place, you know, amidst, uh, you know, amidst essentially a crisis. Perhaps that's not remarkable because, you know, crises are, (laughs) you know, by their definition, moments when, you know, innovation comes comes to the fore. I I just wonder, all of these uh, solutions, they are, to a certain extent, Band-Aid type or, or what, what do you think is going to stay though from, you know? Like Stavros, I would agree with you. Like um, they are Band-Aids or plasters. At-home learning or the learning that a child can engage outside of the classroom will, uh, particularly when you're talking about early childhood, primary, junior, secondary, you know, we're talking like ECD through grade nine, you're never going to replace the role of a teacher, like of a human being leading you through the practice of learning, helping you gain knowledge and the critical importance of the socialization with your peers. I'm sure everyone here who, who has their own children who like went through lockdown is like, it was pretty clear how quickly being isolated and without children of their own age really affects children. Like many of us like survived it viscerally. So it's never going to be a replacement. But I think what will last is like the consideration of how do you integrate these things into a vibrant school day. So one of the things, you know, worth thinking about, you know, we haven't made a full plan on, but it's like, you know, we're debating lots of different pieces and trying to test them out is are there times where we should still use one or more of these audio lessons during the normal in-school school week, which then frees up the teacher, like now children or some children. So you could use it to either break up a class of like some children now do this activity. So the teacher can do something else with these children or the children do this activity, it buys up the time for the, for the teacher to work on um, you know, deep grading of essays, you know, things that take a little bit longer that you want the teacher to be able to really focus on, but you don't want the children to be left alone. And so there are ways that I think this will push elements like that. How do you incorporate some of these practices into the school day? How do you see if they actually add value rather than detract? And I think some of these other pieces will, will remain. So like we developed a, a WhatsApp quiz platform so that kids who did for in places where smartphones are are ubiquitous and, and you know it is possible to access them. Um, and some communities have um, data, um, you know, a free Wi-Fi hotspot. So like you can even get to that place and not even pay for the data. Uh, you know, creating practice quizzes for all grades one through nine for all um, national or state syllabus subjects, which we will we're going to keep doing. We're going to keep building that, augmenting that so that children get more low stakes practice so that they're able to just take 10 minutes, like 10 minutes of a 10 year old doing some double digit multiplication is really beneficial to them, right? And getting feedback, was it right? Was it wrong? Now, what level do you go to next? And doing that in a simple way um, over WhatsApp really enables more practice. And so we're going to keep incorporating that and building that. We're debating the continuation of these audio lessons, how to use them, uh, both possibly in child-based devices, like an MP3 player, what might you do in school, and just overall thinking more about the holistic at-home experience, right? Like what are all the different ways that we could leverage uh, the time that a child is not with a teacher, even when it's a full school day, even when we're in a normal calendar, how can we better think about that now that we were forced to live under those conditions to, to not forget what we've innovated in now, but keep it going and really try to test what works and what doesn't. It's interesting because, you know, I think as the, those, those of us who, you know, thought about and been exposed to, 
so the, some of the literature on, on education, we know actually that the at-home environment, you know, kids experience, it does impact their, their learning even, even when there is a, you know, kind of well-functioning school to, to go to. Part of the reason why, you know, kids from affluent families tend to do better has, you know, I mean, it has to do obviously with, you know, with more resources, but also, I mean, one of the, one of the valuable resources that they have access to is actually parental support and attention. And, and now that, you know, in a, in a sense, you know, many families were, were kind of forced to, to sort of take on some of the, you know, the role of, of, of teachers, I think that, that brought that dimension into, into relief. So I, I kind of applaud the, the fact that you guys are thinking about, you know, how to engage your communities, which, which are by and large not affluent, and, and bring the parents more into, you know, into the process. So is, is that, I mean, can, can you give us some sort of examples of where you're, how you're thinking about integrating parental involvement in the education process? Let, let me start with one thing that's really important to us. And, and, you, and you brought it up, and I think people don't talk about it enough, which is in almost, in, in, in the majority of studies of learning, you know, what impacts learning? consistently, you'll see something that is antithetical to equity. It is that even within the same school, children from um, higher educated, more affluent parents uh, do better. And what I think everyone should realize is that actually means the school is failing because schools exist to equal the playing field. And if they're not doing that, they're not doing their job. It should be that at the same school, Children, regardless of parental background, language spoken at home, um, income levels, or education, all children should have the equal opportunity to do well. And I, like, I hope everyone listening really thinks about that. Like, if you see data about your own schools where children from more affluent backgrounds consistently do better than children from more impoverished backgrounds, something's wrong. Because what that means is your school isn't functioning. Like, you're relying on what parents do at home to cover up that not much is happening in school. So I think it's really important that people think about what you said and take that to heart. And it's why we're both, both interested in what should remain from some of these kind of innovations that came from COVID and like how to, how to create an engaging environment and make sure supplementary resources are available in smart ways. But we're also very cautious and concerned to make sure that that doesn't um, allow us to put the burden on the parent. Right. Like the burden on education of a child needs to be on whoever is providing, actually managing the school or providing the technical support to the school. And we don't we don't want to give ourselves a free pass. Like we don't want to say, okay, now let's put half of it over on the parent because that's what fails kids. Like that's what creates inequality. And we're actually really proud of like research that um DFID commissioned on our, you know, now the FCDO, but back in the day, DFID commissioned on our work in, in Nigeria, in Bridge, Nigeria, that showed very different from other private schools and from, and from public schools that we did deliver equity in Bridge schools in Nigeria. It didn't matter the parents' income, language spoken, education, performance was high and it was flat. So it showed that all children had the opportunity, which then tells us like we're doing something right in the classroom. But so I think it's, I don't want people to rely on parents. Like I want to empower parents. I want to engage parents where they are, but I don't want to shirk our own duties. But I think there are core things that even um, you know pre-COVID that are really important 
that not all schools take super seriously. And there are things that we're testing to kind of see what pushes the envelope a little bit. But parent-teacher conferences are a pretty important and I think very undervalued way of bringing parents in and making sure they're really, you know, having a one-on-one conversation between a teacher and a parent, going over the child's work, talking not just about math, science, English, social studies, but talking about the child's uh, peer relationships, the child's emotional development, their their overall engagement in the classroom, talking about their social and emotional skills. It's a really important thing to do. And so we do that six times a year in a normal school year. And trying to make that happen and getting parents to understand its importance, I think is a pretty big thing, but it, it doesn't require the parent to have time every day. You know, we're kind of saying, hey, six times a year, one of the adults in the household, please come to this, this meeting. We schedule them on Saturdays. We try to make it really easy to participate. I think making sure homework is visible to parents is important, right? It's a, another easy, low-cost, kind of old-school way to make sure parents are engaged. I just, I want everyone to, to remember that, like, particularly working, I mean, in education everywhere, it's not just about working in sub-Saharan Africa, is that if, if, if we're saying parents should do the job... We're not doing ours. But but I also think that what COVID did in, in like a way that I think is a true gift for teachers and for, for, for the education space overall is it made every parent who maybe has never thought about it realize how hard it is to teach a child, how hard it is to keep a child's attention focused in a positive way, how hard it is to make learning interesting, right? And how and that that's like a full-time, full-time thing. And I think that is a real blessing. That now, like everyone in the world, you know, due to the tragedy, right? But so the silver lining is I think people really value teachers. And so there's this moment to like build on that, to continue to empower teachers, to show how important their support is, to show how difficult their job is, the amount of energy they have to have every day, and to therefore hopefully get more support for domestic financing, for for innovative programming, more in-service training and support for teachers. I just think we're in this golden moment that may not last very long. Like we may only have another 12 months or so of, of everyone who doesn't work in education remembering how difficult it was to be their child's teacher. And then how can we use that to really build the ecosystem and get more positive attention and support for education? I, I want to come back to that. I, I just, before we do that, I just want to clarify that I wasn't suggesting we shift the burden of, of education onto parents, more pointing out, I guess, the, the reality that parents who have the means and, and perhaps the time do tend to invest in, 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 in some cases, over-invest in, in their kids, you know, in their kids' education. And, and in my mind, that I think you're maybe being a little harsh in, in saying that a school fails if you see, you know, inequality of outcomes because, you know, the school can't control you know, how much time, the, you know, a, you know, group of parents is, is willing to invest in, you know, giving, giving their kids a, a leg up. But I, you know, I, in, in your remarks, I think you, you pointed out to some, some ways in which you can level the playing field to a certain extent for parents as well, by providing, you know, greater, you know, greater information, greater support to those parents who may want to, you know, support, but perhaps don't know how or don't have the time or don't have the resources to, you know, to, to do that and, and to, you know, make sure that parents from less affluent backgrounds also feel engaged with, you know, with, with the school and, and with their kids, you know, education. So I was, I was coming at it more from that angle, right. You know, 
rather than, you know, to, to sort of suggest that, you know, let's leverage parents for <laughs> to do the job of teachers. But, you know, and, and, and I, you know, and I, and I couldn't agree more with, with, with your comment, Shannon, that yes, we're in this moment now where, you know, the, the, the whole world is finally appreciating <laughs> that teaching is not an easy job. <laughs> Uh, the people who go into teaching don't go into teaching for the three month holidays, right? <laughs> that it is, you know, it is it is a calling. So, you know, I, I know that at New Globe you you do invest a fair amount in in teacher teacher training, teacher preparation. Tell us a little bit about some of the some of the things that you've been you know you've been doing uh, both pre and and during the uh, the pandemic, and how are you thinking about this going going forward? Yeah, I mean, teachers are the heart of a school. Like you can't have one school without them. And I think one of the the ways we think about teacher support that might be a bit different than some is if you're going to support a teacher to embrace best practices and some different ways of engaging in their classroom, if you want to change that teacher's behavior, it's not going to work if you try to do it really slowly, like really incrementally try to suggest something, tweak something, work on it. I, I think some programs come from a point of view of, hey, it might take us five, six, seven years to start to see an impact on, on this group of person's behavior. And we've kind of learned that it's really important to approach it a bit differently, to kind of flip that on its head and say, we have to, from the outset, change this teacher's point of view on their practice. We have to, they need to think very differently about themselves, have more pride in themselves, more excitement about their work and feel like, feel like they're they're they they have a renewal and they're ready and excited to get in the classroom. So we focus on how quickly can we change a teacher's behavior. And then the difficult thing is how do you how do you maintain that change over time? So we focus a lot on like what we what we call an induction training, uh, something that we varied the amount of time uh, we spend on it. Uh, once upon a time in Bridge it used to be six weeks long. Like when I think about that, I'm like, wow, we spent a lot of time on that. <laughs> and then it became, at one point, it shifted to four weeks. Then it was 15 teaching days. It's now pretty much set at 10, like 10 teaching, 10 contact days. But one of the things that we find is very important is to make it, you know, intensive, like 10 days in a row. We want to, we build in a lot of practice, like, pre, you know, we call them scrimmages internally. You like make sure like everything, every lesson that our, our master trainers and our kind of core leaders are sharing mimics how we think about a lesson, a lesson in the school that that teacher is going to teach. There's time where like you're, you're, you're focusing on learning a new skill, but then you got to practice it. Same as in the classroom, the teacher only should speak so much before you know, you have small group work or one-on-one work and you've got to really build that ethos. Like, like, again, I think for people who might be listening from outside of the public sector in, in Africa, it might be, it, it, it just might be hard to believe often how difficult it is to be a teacher in these contexts and how little contact you may have had. So there are teachers where it's like, when we kind of start like a, a technical support program um, in service to a government and 2000 teachers come together um, for a training on, you know, like, what is it to be a teacher and how to be excited to be this teacher again? Most of them haven't had anyone watch them teach ever in their entire career, 15, 20, 25 years. They've essentially been by themselves. Yes, they've been in a school. There are other people there, but the other teachers are teaching. Uh, principals often haven't been taught how to be instructional leaders or they haven't had that expectation. And so no one's watched this teacher teach. And then to just to kind of bring back and say, hey, no, that's, well, that's not right. You know, like you as a teacher, so, so it's yeah. like, 
it's kind of reframing for them both what they should expect from their the ministry, the state board, from our support, and reminding them why they started teaching, and then giving them the tools to have really effective classroom management, but kind of doing that all up front, really trying to be like, let's go from here to there. Let's get all the really excited about it. But we also think that training, when it, it works to change behavior, but the key is consistency. The, the key is, I think, having a having governments commit to a support program where coaches come in uh, to the schools and, and work with teachers on a regular basis. Now, now that there are cost constraints to that. So whether a, co- a coach can come in uh, once a month, one, once every two weeks or once a week, you know, kind of depends on you, you, you work through, through the economics of it, but making sure that those visits happen, you know, and that teachers get feedback and that they hear positive encouragement and that principals are really trained for that too. We see that as core to what we do. Like it's it's about really re-engaging support, you know, re, re-engaging uh, coaching um, within these schools and kind of reminding people that they should be excited about, about teaching and that they actually can have tools to help them to help them do it. Yeah. And, and also I guess, you know, the the, the notion that you know, you you got to practice. You got to role model or role play. You know some of these practices and behaviors. You know, as as a means of getting better at your craft. You know, I mean, again, I I maybe I don't I, I don't know enough about what happens in in you know teacher training colleges around the world, but it you know it, it doesn't strike me as in any way, shape, or form odd. You should be training and coaching people in in this all importance. I mean, you know. After all, you you know you wouldn't expect us you know a surgeon to go in cold into into their first surgery, never having practiced on a you know cadaver or or you know more recently on a you know maybe in a in a simulation, right? You know why why do we expect teachers to just parachute into into a classroom and know you know immediately from day one how to engage you know how to engage a you know a room full of of, of young children, right? without practice without guidance without coaching right no absolutely and and you know and again i think you know some of the things that you you guys are are doing in you know in in trying to systematize this across you know the uh, the systems that you work with again it's 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 quite uh, quite innovative in in the sense that you you know you're trying to get people up to a certain level and then by all means of course after that you know people can innovate people can you know, develop their own, you know, their own particular style, their own particular approach. But you want everyone to to operate at a at a you know from a fairly high baseline of of competence. Yeah, I mean, like there's an analogy, I guess. I mean, so there's two things here, I guess, like or maybe the undercurrent of this conversation where we are is we do think there are best practices in classroom management, you know, that have been have been proven, right, and that it would be unbelievable to not make sure all teachers know them and are trained in them and, and have those skills and those resources. And, and similarly, there is a science of learning. There's a science to how neurologically children's minds work, how they develop over time. And then it can be tested how individual specific elements of pedagogy work or don't work. And so that's part of our approach too, is like really trying to treat learning as a science. Like in in the moment of teaching, there's an art, right? There's judgment, 
there's, there's your own style. There's, there's like your, your energy in the room. And that's really important. And you can see that in every teacher, even if they're using the same kind of foundational um, resources to have guided their approach to the practice. Like if it is proven, you know, testing in 10,000 classrooms that a specific approach to doing problem sets in mathematics does empirically, statistically lead to children's better mastery of the topic, why wouldn't everyone want all teachers to have that resource? And so that's how we think about it. It's like, how do you resource teachers with, with proven foundational um, either practices or materials that they can use that empower them to be successful in the classroom and that empower them to spend more of their personal energy actually as a, a mentor and being emotionally involved with, with the pupils and we see that as a really important indicator of if things are starting to go right is when children's response is my teacher cares about me because that's a real sign that they're starting to form a they're starting to form a bond and part of that happens in a stronger way when a teacher's less afraid when a teacher's less nervous when they feel really proud of themselves and they feel like I got this then they can be more themselves and be more engaged and energetic in the classroom and I mean, it's like you could think of a piece of music uh, that could be played by 50 different artists. They each put their own spin on it. But like the core mathematical harmony of the notes is the same. But so like, you know, the, the core there is the same, but each one of them is very much an individual. And that's part of what also captures the child's attention, you know, and what makes them want to be there. And that's really important that that comes out. No, I mean, you, I think look, you you touch on a on a critical issue that I, I think it, you know this goes beyond Africa and and you know and that's you know what is the role that learning sciences should play you know in helping us you know formulate these these best practices and these approaches and it just it strikes me that not enough actually is being is being done to understand or let me put it this way not enough is being done to adopt, you know, the growing understanding we have of how, you know, how our brains work, how, you know, information is uh, captured and uh, retained and stored. That is not feeding back into how we, how we structure classroom time. And it's, I mean, it's great to hear that you guys are actually, you know, taking a look at that, that very seriously and, 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 you know, putting it into practice, you know, across a, a broad network of schools. Yeah. And um, I mean, one thing we're trying to get better at is like historically, we often do these, um, you know, kind of deep research on learning, you know, learning science and then specific pedagogical practices or changes in classroom management. But we've been really kind of heads down and really focused on just, you know, figure it out, run the randomized control trial internally, figure out what works re-implement internally, you know, just kind of really that constant like iterative feedback to really work on our own programming. But we've really pushed ourselves over the past, I'd say three years, and it's starting to come to fruition of, of trying to invest the time and trying to bring more partners on board, working with um, leading uh, research scientists at universities around the world to get them involved in that research and to push them to publish on it so that then what we're discovering through these through through the scientific approach internally can be shared, and it, it should be public knowledge that everyone can engage with. Um, you know, publishing on things that work, publishing on things that don't work. You know, you try something, and you're like, that didn't do anything. That's an important thing, and so we've really kind of made a commitment 
to start sharing our learning innovation work and to partner more with external scientists to to try to um, contribute more to that overall public conversation in this area in the hopes that like everyone, you know, just more to read, more to debate, more to think through what to bring into your own school and and how to use that science uh, in your own location. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I'd love to just, you know, separately have you back on the podcast just to just to talk specifically about about that because it's it's uh, it's certainly a, a, a sort of interest that, that Wise has and one of our our uh, tracks is is on the learning sciences and specifically also in the context of not just learning outcomes but more broadly well you know student well being and so we you know would love to sort of share you know some some uh, have you share some of your thoughts and. And some of the things that you're finding in in the in the you know the rich data set that you're going you know you're you're collecting from from across your schools. Yeah, it'd be an honor, and we'd invite some of our other you know like the folks from different universities. It could be a really engaging conversation, and to have a lot of the wise community be involved. Shannon, we, I'm, I'm sort of conscious that we're coming up to almost to the sort of hour mark, and so I want to maybe close off the discussion just by asking you to. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what's what's next for New Globe and, you know, how, how are you thinking about, I hesitate to use the term post, post-pandemic given that, you know, we're, we're not, we're still in it, but, but, you know, how are you thinking about, you know, the, the, the day after, so to speak, in, in terms of, of what's next for, for you and, and the communities that you're, you're serving? Yeah, well, we are still in it. Like, I mean, just a you know, every government has dealt with this very differently, right? And and that's, they need to make decisions based on what, on their knowledge and, and, and what their priorities are at the time. I do feel for the families in Uganda, you know, in Uganda, we're still not back in school after 17 months. Like, I, I do think one of the things maybe we didn't touch on just super quick, and I'll go to kind of what else we're looking at, is for everyone to remember, you know, as both children and teachers go back to school, essentially, like you lose a lot of your good habits, right? Like you, both the child, like if you've seen your own children, like how did their behavior change, you know, over 9, 12, 15 months of not being with their peers in a, in a structured setting. Similarly for teachers, I think sometimes we all need to take a, a deeper thought of what environment was this teacher living in when they weren't teaching? Uh, what were their peer pressures? What were what was their own social environment? What were what was expected of them? And then how to make sure we're putting enough effort as schools reopen to support that teacher to to remember the practices that they've been doing? Because I think sometimes you're like, oh, teachers are just going to come right back at it. You know, they're adults. You know, maybe kids are having a problem, but the teachers are going to be fine. And I think I think it's important for everyone to realize this was hard on teachers as human beings and uh, certain things that, you know, might be trying to change in a, in a school. I mean, just like corporal punishment is endemic and trying to change practices about that is really important and really hard work. And when you leave that school setting and you go to a different setting where maybe there are different, there are different values around that. Now you get everyone back into a school setting. It's like, there's a lot of work to help remind everyone of like, you know, what we're trying to do about positive discipline. So I think that's a real key, difficult kind of coming out of the pandemic thing, maybe. And let's hope all schools reopen sometime soon. Um, A big challenge for us, like a big thing we're wrestling with internally looking forward is how we continue to strengthen our capacity building of government leaders 
So like one of our core pieces of like the program we do in support of governments is, you know, bringing in these systems, bringing in technology and digital transparency, bringing in lots of software, bringing in lots of human management. Like people might consider us an ed tech company, but we're only kind of that. Like we're an ed tech company surrounded by a massive human capacity building organization. We personally believe technology doesn't do anything by itself. Like ed tech is not effective without human capacity development. And so the next step for us is how do we even go deeper into shifting um, our IP, our knowledge, our practices from us to each of our government partners. So that, and thinking through that real knowledge sharing and team building and how to really instantiate some of the things that we're able to, to show work to improve school management or classroom practice and have an impact on learning. How do we make sure we support ministries and state boards well enough and with enough deep training internally uh, for, their, for their own team and empowering them that we can step away and they, they can lead for the next decade. And so that's kind of our next big deep dive, really trying to think through that next step. Like we focused a lot on teachers and school leaders, like that whole ecosystem of behavior change and support and training. Now we're really focused on how can we think about it, that at the ministerial level and how can we be better partners um, to their to their knowledge, their growth and their forward progress? Well, I, I can only wish you the, the very best and, and, uh, and say that, you know, at, at WISE we will be you know, as always, following the progress at, at New Globe with, with great interest. And, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to to welcoming you back onto this podcast. And of course, at, at sort of future convenings, just to, to chat some more about uh, about your work and, and more broadly about, you know, how we can advance the cause of quality education around the world, Shannon. So, so Shannon, once again, thanks for being on, on Wise Words. Thank you. Glad to be here. Andrew, welcome uh, back to Wise Words. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's jump right into the discussion, Andrew. What what did you make, uh, what Shannon had to say about what is happening in Africa at the moment? Yes, I, I think um, her comments and those of many others that uh, I've been reading about and, and uh, talking to indeed uh, kind of uh, reflect the enormous challenges that we see, particularly in Africa. Of course, globally, there's all of this sort of issue of post-pandemic recovery and as the kind of the, the phrase would have it building forwards better and of course we know that Africa in many ways starts from a, a lower place in terms of the huge infrastructural challenges human resource challenges um, wider problems including poverty and structural issues that are keeping many children out of school or learning or remaining in school for for periods equivalent to their peers elsewhere in the world and then of course the huge sort of challenge of the digital divide the the absence or the much greater limitation of availability to mobile devices to the web and so on um so much larger challenges i think than than teachers face as they do nonetheless around the world in terms of trying to maintain the connections and use technology and try and find other ways to continue the possibility of some degree of learning. And of course, now in some parts of the world, including 
um, Europe and the US, there's there's much talk about uh, the pandemic coming more under control and a return to some sort of normality because there are many parts of Africa and Asia and so on where schools remain closed. And then, of course, as and when students are coming back or re-engaging with teachers facing huge challenges to understand how much sort of learning has been lost or how far they've even sort of gone backwards in purely educational terms and then of course the much the very important and much wider issues around social support um, emotional support and so on having sort of had much thinner ties to the to the incredibly valuable experience of the school community over the past few months so so in in, in many respects uh, you know this is a, an, an issue that you know seems to cut across geographies but clearly poverty uh, relative poverty tends to exacerbate the challenges again no no surprises there what i found interesting and, and i'd love to get your take on is you know the the extent to which new globe the organization that uh, shannon co-founded and co-leads and it's of course better known for its, its its bridge program to what extent are they you know exemplars of you know the, the extent to which private enterprise can step in and play um, almost sort of a catalytic and role in advancing quality education in these difficult contexts? Well, I think the jury is out. I mean, I think there's no question that um, private and indeed non-profit, philanthropic, um, faith-based and other sorts of organisations sort of outside the state, predominant state influence of education can uh, provide kind of resources and pilots and scope for innovation in many different ways without perhaps the kind of the, the the huge political challenge of kind of trying to buy into the mainstream to leverage these sort of new approaches uh, in a way that's really systematic and much more accessible to all um, as you'll know the, the the sort of debate around the specifically the role of private providers continues. I'm quite interested, having spent many years following also the health sector, about the comparisons between the two. And I have to say, in the same way, there's been a huge, as it were, ideological debate about um, certainly out-of-pocket payments, so whether the households, the families pay for health so equally with education. The I think the sort of pendulum has been swimming back towards the idea that any form of payment at the point of access to a human uh, a social capital service like education ultimately is a big driver of inequality. Um, and of course, equally, uh, whenever there's some form of um, selection process at the point of entry, um, and we see this, of course, in the UK and the US and many other places, um, the challenge is that you then get all sorts of competition for access. Um, you potentially end up sort of cherry picking um, some of the most motivated or brighter children or those who've got the huge social capital of more engaged uh, parents. Um, And then, of course, if you like, the outcomes look impressive um, for all the obvious reasons that, you know, these are very bright kids. So then the real debate, and this is one across education, is, you know, what's the extent of the value added of the educational experience itself as compared to the underlying quality of the children and their background? That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is 
clearly, again, when you have this sort of concentrated, relatively small-scale series of initiatives, you typically also have a substantial amount of extra resource crudely spending per child, whether you have um, higher qualified um, teachers, more teachers um, per student, and so on, all of those will likely lead to more promising outcomes. But actually, um, the challenge, of course, is then how do you scale that up in order to reach every child, to reach the children who would most benefit, who are, you know, most poor, rural, remote, isolated, and bring them in to get the maximum possible return in society, if you like, and for those individuals to reach their potential and achieve. And it's been interesting, I think, even in education, we've been seeing something of a pushback in the last few years, even over the last year or so, the IFC, the private investment arm of the World Bank, has pulled back from funding private education at uh, primary and secondary level. It does some still at the at the tertiary level. Um, and that does, again, partly reflect, I think, this, this ongoing debate. I mean, um, there's a famous um, randomized trial that took place in Liberia, which indeed um, Bridge New Globe uh, was one of a number of participants on. Um, and I mean, the, the the ways in which different providers uh, delivered was put under scrutiny. And I think the results were quite mixed. And it wouldn't uh, be fair to say that the, there's, of course, all the different participants argued for their own case and said there were sort of certain, you know, potential shifting of goalposts and so on. But, um, you know, the private sector or the kind of the for-profit model um, compared to charities and various other groups um, didn't necessarily uh, come out better um, in terms of the actual outcome, let alone the relative cost per student. So I think it's it's still very much open debate. I mean, what what's been interesting perhaps is to see this evolution or refocusing amongst others of, of New Globe on less on thinking of themselves as sort of on the front line, if you like, as the as in the classroom or as the operator of schools and more as a sort of enabler facilitator if you like of the backbone or the infrastructure uh, we 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 convened a sort of panel um of some senior education policy experts recently and i think one thing that came out of that is you know there is of course scope for the private sector as indeed of course the public sector and the nonprofit the social sphere in education but perhaps there's been too much focus on business private sector as being a provider of um, services or, or being the operator and there needs to be a greater focus on these areas where there are some shared efficiencies around technology around generating data and insights to support policymakers and equally incidentally a, a final role for the private sector, of course, New Globe is a is a sort of nonprofit as well. But um, you know, there is there's a role for all different actors in society, including business, to be there actually as an advocate um, and to be pushing governments to step up to the plate in the lead role in terms of investing more and in the right places in education for the benefit of all. Which, of course, in the case of employers, also means equipping the next generation with the right skills and, and values and characteristics that they need. Yeah, no, you, you're right. I mean, the, the um, shift of the model towards a more of a sort of public-private type partnership is interesting to to observe. I mean, we sh- we shouldn't, I I think, close the door on 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 the extent to which 
you know, a, a private sector entity that's, you know, that, that is in a sense accountable to parents, perhaps in a, in a different way than, than a public sector uh, provider might be able to, to, you know, deliver uh, better value. And I, I believe Shannon uh, remarks uh, alluded to, you know, to, to a report that's, uh, uh, that, that's coming out in a sense that, that sort of looked quite deeply at their, uh, you know, at their model and, and the outcome. So maybe we should, you know, we, we should reflect on that when, when it's out and see what, uh, you know, where the evidence uh, points towards. But uh, maybe this is a good segue to talk a little bit about um, the forthcoming Investing in Education uh, magazine that uh, Financial Times is putting out in uh, in about a month's, a month's time. It, you know, what uh, can, can you preview a little bit some of the some of the stories and some of the ideas that are going to be featured? Yes, yeah, so so in early October, um, we're coming out with a magazine which is sort of wrapping up um, a sort of couple of years worth of um, reporting that we've called investing in education, and and we mean investing very much in the sense of investing in human capital rather than investing for profit, I should say. Um, but really, the, the kind of core idea is that, of course, education is a fundamental, did some would say, human right, um, and clearly something that really needs considerable fresh focus and resources to um, make good on the huge um, learning gaps, the the lack of basic um, literacy and numeracy in schools, which in many parts of the lower income uh, countries in particular is shockingly low, and therefore means that um, although there's been a very substantial increase in resources, particularly for kind of building schools and classrooms and for sometimes hiring and paying better to teachers. Um, there's been rather less focus on ensuring that once children are in school, they actually learn. And clearly, both in terms of preschool to build those very initial uh, building blocks, and then in the early years in primary to ensure that children can master the basics on which they can then build and learn and progress meaningfully into secondary school and beyond. Um, there needs to be much more focus on that. So that's one key area and, and indeed uh, an issue that we've been looking at recently, again, particularly in Africa, is uh, the kind of the ongoing legacy of a, of a system that was really built by colonial powers um, for cultivating an elite, or indeed, um, very often in Africa and Asia, to sort of, you know, largely prepare people for subsidiary roles. Um, and in many ways, that system, I think, still hasn't been fundamentally enough uh, questioned and evolved, including um, the the very issue of the language in which children learn. So it's extraordinary how many, of course, um, African countries, for example, still use English or French, notably, as the language of reference. And of course, there are challenges to this, but I think there's some growing sense in Senegal, for example, um, Tanzania, a number of other countries that that starting children in the language of their playground, of their home, of their community, um, and then potentially shifting into the reference language of education after three to four years 
means they have much greater chance of early mastery. And indeed, once they can start to understand and relate to the language that's most familiar to them, their own, that they speak in their communities, it's then easier both to to develop a literacy that you can then build on and switch to trying to understand in a lang- another language if indeed that makes sense for them. So the language issue is one thing, the curriculum is another. I think it's really important though to not simply focus on those absolutely core academic uh, issues. And so we also talk about some of the wider challenges that need to be dealt with, um, particularly when you have, for example, population movements and disruption caused by conflict or climate change or war. Of course, the huge and growing numbers of refugees around the world, um, largely, of course, into into very often neighboring countries, uh, Uganda, um, for example, Lebanon, Turkey. And so we've tried to look at um, some of the best practices and the challenges in those regions. And then, of course, a huge area which is around that sort of Post is perhaps too early to say, but but at least the kind of as we emerge from COVID, um, thinking about how best to adapt and move forwards. And so, of course, we talk about this huge, huge learning uh, loss, uh, particularly how differentiated it is for the excluded, whether in richer or, or poorer countries. Um, we talk about kind of what might be needed in terms of rapid assessments and then a honing down of the curriculum to really focus on the on the key things that children need to catch up rather than the nice to haves um complemented as i mentioned earlier with with sort of social emotional and broader um skills and and characteristics that'll be incredibly important i mean one thing which we also touch on of course is is the role of technology and um for all of the hype and the challenges there clearly is potential and i think you know most teachers who've used it now will see the value in some form of blended or hybrid approach um going forwards as long as it's used uh, thoughtfully and people are very mindful of the risks of disparities in access and how you cope with some remote and some on site and a final thing i think is very interesting is 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 just thinking about how um during the periods of school closure, um, and even with very basic, often text messaging and so on, um, I was talking to um, uh, Rukmini Banerjee, for example, in India about this, how even just the mere fact of simple communication and engagement for sort of support between teachers and children and between teachers and parents and their communities is really important. And there is potential out of this to build a more sort of integrated model with greater um, family community teacher support for schooling rather than thinking you just send off the children into a sort of black box for the day and they come home and and then that's the end of the sort of educational and learning experience so there are some really interesting i think sort of stories around all of this as well to say but i think at the end of the day and 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 this our magazine ties in with the um imf world bank annual meeting i think still the educational sector overall um, has been too much of talking to itself. And I think when they start to draw lessons, for example, from the health sector or indeed around climate change and sustainability, where there's been a great, a greatly more effective ability to sort of pull back and show how these are issues that affect 
everyone, um, uh, and therefore they've been more effective in mobilising political support and resourcing. And I think, you know, to pull educationalists out of their education ministries and schools and so on and try to find the right language to align and connect with finance ministers, with um, other forms of funders, and indeed with the most senior levels of political leaderships will be really important uh, in the months to come and and what what's what's the, the thinking there? I mean, I I, I share you know the, your 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 feeling that the education sector is sometimes a little too insular and inward looking. But you know what what would you hope, for example, you know the, the sector could learn, say from from healthcare, just to sort of pick pick that sector as a as a reference point. Well, I think so. There are parallels we talked earlier about. Um, you know, the idea of what's the right frame of reference, um, uh, you know, is payment at the point of access, either for treatment in the case of health or for education in the case of schools, the right approach, or does that actually drive greater inequality? Are there nonetheless, and we see this much more in healthcare, um, possibilities for a more mixed economy? You know, so for example, the private sector clearly, as we know, and we've seen very visibly with COVID, is very active in innovation around new tools to put in drugs, diagnostics, uh, vaccines. Um, is there more scope to do, you know, to develop new innovative approaches in education. We've talked about the kind of the IT backbone, about the scope with extra resourcing, whether from foundations or private sector or donors to to explore new approaches that can then be scaled up. So I think there's there's an issue around trying to find a new forum to bring together different groups. But I think there's also a kind of huge challenge of, um, you know, still quite weak understanding and testing and articulation of models that work. We've started to see um, the former UK DFID aid agency with the World Bank and others has been sort of developing these so-called best buys, trying to draw on evidence to say, you know, where can um, extra resource actually lead to more impactful results. The challenge is still the data is incredibly fragmented. The trials are often still quite um, constrained or even contrived in the way they're structured. Um, education, of course, is much more difficult than health in many ways. You don't get the instant Lazarus effect of a, um, an illness giving a drug and then a, and then a recovery. Um, you know, very often these are um, things that are very difficult to tease out the different drivers of problems and the different explanations for improvement. But I think a huge greater effort is required in, in research, in analysis, in innovation that could start to point the way more rigorously to new initiatives. And one of the problems is we still have this huge sort of disease of pilot-itis, if you like, with lots of very small-scale projects which um, claim to be delivering some great things, but both in terms of the extra intensity of resources and the uniqueness of a particular set of circumstances of individuals and so on, they don't necessarily scale. And it's quite sort of concerning, depressing, sad to see um, how few rigorous long-term education projects that are delivering improved outcomes have been able to, to scale within one country, let alone across different borders in different forms. So I think we need a lot more focus on research, on evidence, on data, on measurement, and indeed on accountability, because I think we often see, you know, lots of big 
gatherings and debates and one-off projects and reports and so on, but then very little momentum that sustains it. You know, each government agency entity sort of defends their own territory rather than perhaps creating a more collaborative approach to to be additive. Well, of course, these are all topics that are close close to the heart of, of WISE and uh, we will be touching on, on many of these at the forthcoming WISE 2021. Great. So we'll, we'll look forward to, uh, to the magazine, Andrew. It's coming out on 14th of October uh, alongside the World Bank IMF meetings. Uh, and of course, we will you know, very much look forward to uh, future exchanges and conversations with you and of course, to welcoming you to WISE uh, in Doha, December 7th to 9th. So Andrew, thanks again for being on Wise Words. Thanks, thanks very much. Very good to, to be in touch. This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. What did you think of this episode with Shannon May? We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. And with the conclusion of this episode, we mark the end of our season focusing on post-pandemic priorities for education. Have you checked out some of the other episodes this season? Each episode has focused on a specific region of the world, and there are now six in total, which you can check out, including this one. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard here on the show. Keep an eye on our social media channels to be informed when we plan on starting our next season of Wise Words, which will be happening in the lead up to the 2021 Wise Summit taking place in Doha, Qatar on 7 to 9 December. For more information, check out the links in the description. Once again, thank you very much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, yep. I think yeah, we're 29 minutes and 13 uh, seconds. Perfect. So. <laughs> perfect. Good. Good, good. We'll, we'll let you get on with your uh, with your uh, meeting your deadlines and yeah. no I, I will look forward to that to that report i mean i think uh, it'll it'll be very very uh, the magazine will be very very interesting to issues i just you know and maybe i, I should have mentioned this on the reporting but uh, I, I do worry sometimes that you know that you know as we beat the drum of equity that that you know we it may be taken to to uh, to the other extreme of trying to bring everyone down to a certain level, um, you know, in, in an effort to achieve equality of outcomes. Um, so, so, you know, when we, you know, when we, when I, I don't know how one deals with the fact that, you know, for example, middle and upper middle class parents do spend more of their time and resources, you know, educating their kids. I mean, do, do we necessarily want to stop that? which is kind of what they're doing in China. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, look, I think, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. um, of course, you know, you can't, you can't, and, you know, it'd be a shame to even try to stop, um, you know, the kind of the values and, and support and so on, as long as, you know, you're doing it in a, in a healthy way. I mean, what, as we know, the problem in a lot of Asian countries is this obsessive focus on sort of tutoring for an exam, which actually becomes self-defeating because, you know, you've only got a limited number of places at the elite universities for them to get into. Um, but, but, but I think, so I think it needs a more 
values-based sort of holistic approach to it. But I think the other thing is, you know, obviously, no, I agree. I mean, there is a danger that you kind of um, underserve your elites if you uh, if you kind of sort of neglect them. I suppose the, you know, the counter argument is that typically though, you know, brighter kids with social capital will do better in any case. You, you clearly do need programs to support them. Um, the reality is there's probably a lot more of those sort of programs that are out there at the moment, whereas there's much less that's really dealing with those who are kind of dropping out. And if you don't have the kind of the <laughs> the infrastructure and the base structure, as it were, then the superstructure yeah. itself. No, I, I would, I mean, I would absolutely be, and I am, you know, very much in favor of directing resources, you know, to, to the underserved. Yes, yes. You know, rather than sort of trying to manage or, or trying to sort of directly influence the overserved, <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. if one could use that term. Yes. But anyway, yes. Lots, lots to talk about. <laughs> <laughs>